Nick Nolte is out of prison and comes up a little short on good luck. Meanwhile, three accomplished directors share stories centered around a beloved city. Coming up next on Out of Touchstone. is the 1960s supergroup Cream, led by Eric Clapton, and it's a song called Politician. It's from our second movie, and to be honest, it's, it's one of the most memorable things to me of that second movie. Uh, welcome to Out of Touchdown. My name is Mike DeKalb. Um, we are once again still under the stay-at-home orders here in California, so my co-host is on the other end of the Skype line. It's Chad Smart. How are you doing, Chad? I am doing good. And uh, you said you, you really like that Cream song. Would you say you, do you scream for que- Cream? I, I don't scream. I'm, I'm trying to go with an ice cream, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for Cream, but it's not working. Let's just, let's just move on. I, sure, I scream for Cream, sure, yes. Uh, we wrapped up 1988 on the last episode, and now we move into 1989, and I got to be honest, I mean, we saw, even in 1987, you know, Touchdown had several hits, 1988, uh, not as many, but still, you know, Roger Rabbit did really well at the box office, they got some Oscar nominations, uh, 1989, from what we've seen so far, not going to be as good of a year, <laughs> <laughs> I fear that it's, we're going to have, there's one really, really standout movie of the year, and then the rest of them are going to be, I mean, maybe some comedy, some dramas, I, I think they're taking some chances, which is which is nice to see. But uh, and most importantly, I think 1989 also sees the return of several actors coming back to do Touchstone movies. You got Robin Williams, Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Tom Selleck, and the first star who is actually in both of the movies we're going to discuss today. And that is, of course, Nick Nolte. Uh, First up, we're going to discuss a comedy he did with Martin Short. It was released on January 27th of 1989, and it's called Three Fugitives. Touchstone Pictures presents... The world's worst bank robber and the ex-con he took hostage. You, you coming with me? I'm the hostage. It's a comedy of errors about two mismatched partners who can't seem to work together. Nick Nolte, Martin Short, Three Fugitives. What's with the way? Rated PG-13. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspapers for showtimes. Uh, yes, the film was written and directed by the French auteur Francis Weber. I'm going to say Weber, Weber. I'm going to just go with Weber. Um, he was a prolific writer throughout the 1970s uh, with movies like The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe and the original Birdcage, which was the French film La Cage à Faux. He had three prior directing credits. Ironically enough, all three of them were remade in America. Uh, a film called Les Jouets, 
Jouet, I guess, which is which was remade as The Toy. A uh, one called Le Chevre, which I'm gonna I, I'm butchered the pronunciation of that, uh, which stand, which means knock on wood, which was remade as Pure Luck. And another, the last one is Le Compare, which is known called I guess the translation is Calm Dads. Seems I'm not exactly sure what that word's supposed to mean. And that was remade uh, as a movie called Father's Day. Uh, all of the all of those films starred uh, the the actor Pierre Richard. And Gerard Depardieu appeared in the last two. I see. I don't know if you looked into this, but it seems like it was like a comedy duo of Pierre Richard and Gerard Depardieu. I did not, but uh, I I just have to go back to La Jouet, La Jouet, the toy. That yes. is uh, a film from the '80s for people that don't know, where Jackie Gleason buys his son. Um, whose name just escaped me. It's the kid. He was in A Christmas Story, Scotty Schwartz. Okay. Buys Scott Schwartz, Richard Pryor, to be his playmate, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, just let that settle in, set in for, for a second uh, about the whole thing. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a movie I don't think we're going to get a remake of anytime soon. Probably not, yes. Um, in 1985... Francis Bieber was a jury member at the Cannes Film Festival where he met Jeffrey Katzenberg from Touchstone Pictures. And he told Jeffrey the plot of his next film, which was called Les Fugitives. Katzenberg immediately decided that he wanted to remake the film. So Bieber wrote an English language script while Katzenberg uh, persuaded Disney to buy the U.S. distribution rights for Les Fugitives. Um, unfortunately, it became a, a little bit of a contentious point because disney did not end up distributing Les fugitives until after the american remake three fugitives came out and it was a couple of years later uh, i read an article in the la times where francis bieber in 1988 he said quote i'm convinced it won't be released the time between the two versions is just too close and i'm sure disney feels putting the first into cinemas will create a confusion rather than enhance the new film end quote um i also saw another quote probably from the same article where the vice president of acquisitions at the Goldman company and the Goldman company were the ones who distributed three men in a cradle, the original French version of three men and a baby. They did the U S distribution on that film and they had tried to acquire the rights to avoid Disney to, to avoid letting Disney co have it collect dust, but they were unable to, uh, to get Disney to sell it to them. Uh, uh, Weber earns a Cesar nomination for best screenplay for Les fugitives which was, I thought was kind of interesting. So as far as the American remake, as we mentioned, the star is Nick Nolte, uh, familiar, familiar face for the Touchstone family. He's, he did Down Out Beverly Hills in 1986, and then he starred in two movies since then before he came back for Three Fugitives. They, both those films were released in 1987. The first one is called Extreme Prejudice, which was directed by the great Walter Hill. And... There, uh, the other one was called Weeds. I'm not overly familiar. I mean, I, I know the TV show Weeds, but the film Weeds, which involves a prison inmate writing a play and becoming successful. I, Chad, do you know that one? I got nothing on that. I one. know of it. I know I've seen bits and pieces, but I wouldn't be able to. Had you not in our show rundown put in the the plot of the movie, I would have probably just said I know it involves prison in some in some way, but I don't know the details of the story. And I've never seen Extreme Prejudice either, which, uh, but I am familiar with it. Yeah, it's one of those titles that you just, yeah. I just remember hearing about when I was a kid. Uh, of course, acting opposite Nick Nolte in Three Fugitives is Martin Short. 
He had done extensive television work during the late 1970s and early 1980s. Most notably, people know him from uh, SCTV, and then he, he did Saturday Night Live. I didn't realize this. He was only on Saturday Night Live for one season, the 1984-85 season. Hmm. Yeah. And he makes it... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, I, I believe it's that one season, which has probably one of my favorite, I can't really call it a skit. It's more like a short film where he does the synchronized swimming. Oh, with Harry Shearer? With Harry Shearer, where he can't swim. <laughs> and so <laughs> he's got like the floaties. R floaties. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He made his, Martin Shearer made his film debut in 1979 with a film called Lost and Found, another one I'm not overly mm. familiar with. And he did three films. In 1986 and 87, after his run on SNL, and they're some of the better movies of the 80s, Three Amigos, Inner Space, and then another a romantic comedy called Cross My Heart. Not, do not know that one. Him and Annette O'Toole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen you, that you, one. You have? Oh, okay. Yeah. And then his previous work before Three Fugitives, uh, in the fall of 1988, he does the Saturday morning cartoon show called The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, which is based on the character he played on SCTV and SNL. I did read something that said that it's to this to, to this day, it's still the only animated Saturday morning series that's based off of a Saturday Night Live character. I, I mean, I haven't really bothered to look in to see if that's true, but uh, the show was only canceled. It was canceled after only one season and only 13 episodes aired. Oh, so uh, he and Jim Varney probably sat around and reminisced about their <laughs> failed Saturday morning cartoons or TV shows. Yeah, and they would, have, they would have been on at like approximately the same time, right? In the fall of 1988. They're yeah. competing against each other. That's so funny. Uh, it's an extensive supporting cast, but I just wanted to, to highlight two people, and that is Alan Ruck. Of course, we know him from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. His previous film credit was Three for the Road, which I mentioned because it was directed by Bill Norton, who had directed Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. And are you familiar then, with that movie? Three for the Road? Actually, yeah. I, did, I, I did see that. I remember seeing okay. that with my mom. That's the Charlie Sheen, Carrie Green, yes. Alan Ruck road trip movie where she's like a politician's daughter and he's and Charlie Sheen's trying to be a – he wants to be an intern for that mm-hmm. politician, right? And so she agrees to drive her across the country. Yeah, and she's, I think, uh, not stable is a good way to put it from what Something I remember. Like that, right? yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Three Fugitives also gives us James Earl Jones – uh, the extensive uh, film library, but he was just coming off of Coming to America, which was uh, I, I still one of my favorite movies of the 1980s. So f- we've got a new year on Touchstone, and I wanted to try something new just to help speed up the discussion. As we talk about it uh, often on this show, Chad and I are not film critics. I don't want to get into reviews of the film. I'm more interested in the trivia aspect and how these movies came to be and where they fit into Disney's canon. And so we decided whether it would be in reference to our good friends over at Tom and Jim's Top 5, we thought it would be fun to to simply list some positives and negatives from each film as we go into the plot. Now, we don't, I don't want to get into the minutiae and say this, then the plot starts with this, and then this scene. And so we just keep it simple, but have each, and each of us come up with uh, just a couple, two or three positives and negatives about the film. Hopefully we won't be too negative. So instead, I'll start with positives. For my first positive for Three Fugitives, <laughs> I have the short runtime of 96 minutes. Uh, I don't want to go uh, in too much detail, but I'm not a big fan of this movie. I was not really, I was quite bored by the time it was over. But I will say as a positive, it's got a short runtime, and I think that ends up making the plot move rather quickly. Hmm. Of course, unfortunately, it's sometimes to a fault, as we see just, all, there's a lot of plot holes where stuff gets bridged together, and you're like, okay, how did they get there? And the director's just like, nope, let's just let's just keep it moving. So I can kind of give him credit. He he does cut most of the extraneous scenes to not waste any time. And if you're going to, I think if you're going to make a farce, which is what this film is, 
then it's, that's a pretty good length. You don't want to uh, linger too much on those moments. I mean, did the runtime affect you in any way, Chad? Well, I agree with you. And this, this is something I think we've mentioned on past episodes where I feel today's movies, for whatever reason, outstay their welcome. You know, we're looking at films. The average film now is probably two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, it seems. Whereas you could look back at these 80s films that were 90 to 100 minutes, and that's like the perfect length. You hit your jokes, you get in, you get out, and everything's great. So I agree with you. Although, yeah, even 96 minutes might be a little, you know, shave off about seven minutes from that runtime. <laughs> Okay, could have taken it even further. Yeah. And it's funny, I will discuss it on our next episode, but we recently, my wife and I recently watched Dead Poet Society, and which is, like I said, great movie. It's a, it's a little over two hours, and all I could think when I was watching it is I was like, if this was made today, it'd probably be about 2.30, mm-hmm. maybe 2.40, you know, just to get as much more uh, of, the, of the, the dramatic heft of the film. But, uh, Chad, have you got a positive for Three Fugitives? Yeah, I do. I watched this movie after you had seen it, and you'd kind of given me a heads up, like... Beware, 1989's not starting off too great for Touchstone. But so I think I went in with lowered expectations and enjoyed the beginning of half the film a lot more than uh, I probably would have otherwise. But I think the bank robbery scene with Martin Short, um, you know, the whole, you know, we don't want to get into the minutia of the film, but the, the whole plot revolves around Nick Nolte getting out of prison for after five years for committing a bank robbery. He goes into a bank to cash a check and Martin Short comes in to rob the bank. And then that's where the, you know, hilarity ensues after that. Yeah. They think that Nick Nolte's robbing the bank, but it's actually Martin Short. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because that actually comes up again in a movie that I really love that came out about 10 years ago, which is JCVD, hmm. which is the, the movie where Jean-Claude Van Damme plays himself, yeah. where he's he, his character is sort of fallen on hard times. And he goes, I think it's like a post office because over in he's either in France or Belgium and he goes to cash a check and they gets robbed and then everybody thinks that jcvd is the one mm. robbing the place but yeah he's just a hostage just like nick nolte yeah no i i found this bank robbery scene to be quite comical especially with the bank teller um, yes so. i had that as one of my positives as well the bank teller character is very well used it's good mm. comic uh timing on his work yes yeah so that's my positive and i know that yeah looking at your list we kind of overlap on a couple so yeah, uh, yeah. I think the the bank robbery scene is is probably the funniest scene in this entire film. Yeah, and I the funny part is uh, again I had that as one of my positives as well was the bank teller character because he ends up getting some of the best jokes of the film because there's actually a scene where he comes back in later and it's still he's still got he's still got good one liners and just acting opposite the cops and I loved it so I had to look him up. His name is David Arnott. And he's he's done a handful of uh, acting roles and a lot of, a lot of television. But what I I could not get past, what I thought it was so interesting, is he has two writing credits, feature screenplay credits, co-writers, and it's two of my favorite movies <laughs> that are both great co- silly farce type comedies. The first is The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, hmm. which he co-wrote with Daniel Waters, who had wrote Heather's, which one of my is still one of my favorite movies. And then the other movie that he wrote was The Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I'm like, I, I, who knew that this this guy who has he's he steals three fugitives and, and his limited time on screen. And he also gets, goes on to write two great movies in the 1990s. Um, the only other positive I had for the movie, which, you know, I joked when I jokingly told my wife because she did not like the movie either. And when I told her, I said, yeah, I'm going to come up with positives. She was like, what kind of positives are you going to come up with? Really? What do you got? And my first thing was. Nick Nolte 
has great comedic chops. Mm. I don't think he gets enough credit for that because he's this big brawny guy. You know, I looked him up. His backstory, he played football and baseball in college. Like, he's this big linebacker of a man. And so when he does comedic roles, he's, if, if his timing is on, he gets a chance to be really funny. And, I, and that's what I love. You know, he's rough and tough. And so it, but it gives his funny moments that much extra heft. Like, you can, believe, you can believe him as a hardened bank robber. You know, I think it's so easy to, to if you're going to have this farce about this, okay, there's this guy getting out of prison, and now he's going to go on the lam with this other guy who's, who does not deserve to be a bank robber. You know, you want to have a guy that you could believe. And Nick Nolte, mm-hmm. yes, I could totally believe him because he's kind of that, he kind of has that crotchety old man kind of thing, even when he was young. So I do appreciate Nick Nolte's comedic chops. I, it's been a long time since I've seen 48 Hours, but I mean, everyone loved him in that, and then that's, it was good enough to make a sequel. He plays a good straight man when going up against more of a silly character that was known for acting on Saturday Night Live. Right? There you go. Yeah. That, that's his thing. <laughs> I'm with you. I have him listed as my third good thing about this film as well. I, I Again, he's an actor that I remember a lot from the 80s and then, you know, don't know, haven't seen a lot of his post 80s career. Um, I know he was on a TV show, I believe, on the Stars Channel a few years ago where he was playing an ex-president who's trying to, I think, make up for things that his administration had done, if I have that plot right. Um, I've, I've not watched the show, but that's like the last thing that I can think of that he was in. Okay. And then, yeah, in the, his 90s stuff, uh, was he in, what was he Oscar-nominated in 1998, I believe? Affliction? Or Affliction, yes. Yeah. I wanted to say Atonement, but that's a whole other movie with Kira nah. uh, Knightley. Yeah, Which so. would have been, a, yeah, I think that's a tandem that we need to see on cinema oh, screens. Kira yeah. Knightley and Nick Nolte are back. For sure. Sure. Um, uh, that's it for me for positive. Yeah. Do you have any other positives for the film? Check? I, I was just going to point out, you know, like you said, you're we're kind of stretching trying to find three good things about this film, <laughs> and and so I just put Alan Ruckman and James Earl Jones. Um, to okay, yeah. you know, I've said it on the show. I love character actors, which is what I would put Alan Ruckman into that. Alan Ruck. yeah. What's that? Alan, Alan Ruck. Ruck. Yeah, I don't know why I have Ruckman you're, typed down. You're making a hybrid of Alan Rickman and Alan Ruck. Which yes, would also be a good. Would, would have been a good pairing back in the exactly. day. Exactly. I don't know why. Auto, I'm going to blame autocorrect for changing your Ruckman. <laughs> uh, but Alan Ruck, you know, I, I remember when he showed up in Speed, I'm like, yes, it's Cameron. Um, and like, you you know. Young Guns 2. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, and James Earl Jones, like you said, is the voice of our generation, it seems, yeah. you know. So, and, and but do again, you wish... Do you wish, I almost wish there were more scenes with those two guys. They're 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 not in the movie nearly enough. They, no. You see them at the beginning, and it, it, it's they set up that they're the, that's going they're going to be the cops hard on them. And all I kept thinking about was the Charles Durning character from mm. Tough Guys, where he's he's right there when Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster Burt Lancaster get out of prison, and he's mm-hmm. I'm going to be on you guys. And I was worried they were going to be underused, and they're they're not underused, they're not overused, they're just used. Like I wish yeah. they would have been a little bit more overused. I, I agree with you. This movie probably. And, and I, you know, looking at our three negatives, I think you take out a little bit of Martin Short and you put in more Alan Ruck and James Earl Jones. Yeah. And you got a good movie. Yeah. So unfortunately, like I said, we try to be positive, but I also want to point out some of the negatives. And unfortunately, there was plenty of them <laughs> in this film. To me, the main one is just I found Martin Short to be very annoying. Mm. And and it, you end up the Nick Nolte character ends up being sort of a proxy for the audience because he is clearly 
cannot stand him in the first half of the movie. And I understand you've just come out of prison and now this guy's dragging you back into this this scenario. Um, but so I, I feel like you really have to like Martin Short. Like I, I couldn't help but think that the, the idea in my head was I call it full on Marty. You know, I love inner space, but he's he's it seems like it's a little bit restrained. He has his wacky scenes in that movie. But for this one, he's just it's a little over the top and you, you, it's hard for them. It, I don't know. It was a little cringeworthy watching how they had to pair together and how the plot gets set up. And when you see the scene where they he convinces him and how they have to join together. And I just I was not really having it. You know, why I robbed that bank this morning for my little girl who's sick to pay for this special school that she goes to. And they're not going to put me in jail. OK, they're not going to take her away from me. What's it to me? I couldn't pay my rent either. I was just about to be thrown out. And when you're homeless, then they take your children away. That's why I'm in this mess. Please help me. Look, if I am arrested, I am going to drag you into this. I'm going to make you look as guilty as hell. And I know that's a terrible thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because the only thing that matters to me is my little girl. I'm sorry about this. I really am. I know you've got plenty, but Chad, what is one of your negatives from this film? Well, like I said, Barton Short was on my short list, no pun intended. Uh, save the crickets for later. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Martin Short <laughs> was on there. And, and again, like you said, he goes full on Martin Short. And there's, I think there's a reason why there hasn't been an Ed Grimley movie made, because I don't think that character would last, you know, for 90 minutes even. Sure. So one of the things I found shocking about this movie is... Before I started watching it, I thought it was a PG-13 film, which it turns out it is. It is, yeah. But then when watching it, I'm like, oh, this must be an R-rated film. I And I know, you know, I have gotten more prudish in my, as I age up the ladder of aging, I guess. But uh, I was shocked at how many four-letter words are in this film. And I'm yeah. like, because I remember seeing this when it came out on video, and I don't remember it back then. But, you know, I would think like, I would have thought watching this film, if I had a family, oh, sure, let's have movie night, bring out the kids. No, I don't think I would want to watch this movie with kids because yeah. I don't understand why the language was necessary. I, I felt the same way. As soon as it was over, I just assumed this was R-rated. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's funny if, if you get a chance, maybe I'll put it up on the old Out of Touchstone Twitter account, but there, somebody made a really funny uh, YouTube video where it's three fugitives in 30 seconds. And all it is is just a mashup of all the times that Nick Nolte yells obscenities at Martin Short. And it's like, that's the whole movie, because the plot yeah. is so thin, you know. I mean, and that was one of the things that I thought is, I think sometimes, you know, four-letter words can be used as humor, mm -hmm. it, but also if, if, if it's also not creative enough, like if the writers can come up with a good joke, it's like, oh, let's put a, cur a curse word in there. And that was one of the negatives I had of the film, is that the jokes were extremely telegraphed. Like, you can see them coming a mile away. You know, when Martin Short says, oh, I'm going to take you to this doctor to help you with your gunshot wound. Like, and he's like, it's, he's out of his house. And you're like, well, and Nick Nolte's like, well, how is he not going to tell on me? And my first thought was, oh, my God, he's probably going to be a vet, right? Oh, look, he's a veterinarian. And then, okay, that's, that, that's the joke. That's, that's all there should be. But mm. instead, that joke goes on and yeah. on and on, where it's like, where the doctor keeps thinking that Nick Nolte is a dog. And you're like, okay. And then you see the doctor again later, and he's still referencing him as a dog. And you're like, come on. And then 
I don't know if you remember, I remember from all the trailers and TV spots, but there's a scene where Nick Nolte tells Martin Short, you know, you got to stay hidden because we're on the lam. So make sure you don't look at anybody and keep your head down. And so you're like, uh oh, let me guess. He's going to have his head down. He's going to walk into a pole. Oh, look, he has his head <laughs> down and he walked into a pole. Like, Twice. It's just, I, I don't think it's funny. Like, like there's, and there's a scene at the end where he's wearing a wig and he's like, oh, I'm going to put my head out the, the window to get some fresh air. And like, as soon as he does it, I, my, my wife and I both <laughs> looked at each other and we're like, the wig's going to blow off, isn't it? And then it's going to get run over by a car, and you're like, oh, yeah. So that's, so then, unfortunately, that means it's not funny to me because mm-hmm. if, when you can see the joke coming, how is it funny? I don't know. Yeah. Any other any other negatives? Or well, any other, any I mean, the last thing coming? I had, I, I was just going to talk about the cross-dressing scene towards the end as well. And to me, that's a scene lifted straight out of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and oh, it just okay. didn't work. Like you said, it's – it's how there's a suspension of disbelief that has to come along with every film. Yeah. Three fugitives ask you to completely wipe any memory you have because you just have to not believe anything in this film. The cops, you know, you, I'm going to steal a little bit of your third negative here is you mentioned the cops being Keystone-ish. Yeah. Um, I, because we had postponed recording this episode by a day, I took that extra time to actually watch the French film, La Fugitives, which I found online uh, only in French. I do not speak. Oh. I do not speak <laughs> French. There are no closed no captions, subtitles? no subtitles. <laughs> so I basically watched it to see. I'm going to let those sirens pass. No, I think it's kind of funny. Okay. We're talking about cops and I got <laughs> sirens driving past my apartment. Okay. Go ahead. Keep going. Um, so I just mainly put it on to watch and and follow along to see how much of the film had changed from, you know, the French version to the American version. And I think all they did was translate the French dialogue into English because it is pretty much yeah. a shot for shot. The only thing I noticed was when they're after the bank robbery scene, when they're hiding under the car and I think the gun goes off and it shoots and oil drips down onto Martin Short's face. That scene's not in the French version. Okay. But having watched it and not knowing French, so just kind of watching and knowing only that I know the French people love Jerry Lewis, mm-hmm. I I sense that the cops are more of that French comedic taste. Like it oh, plays to that to that um, audience better than it would play to an American audience, where it's just like, okay, yeah, bumbling cops. Well, yeah, but that's a problem. I think we see that a lot in our touchstone movies, unfortunately, you know, and it's, it's not the first time I've noticed it on this podcast where the cops are kind of silly. The criminals, I mean, they're, they're, they're basically criminals from a comedy film. Yeah. Like you don't think, I mean, they might try to come off as being threatening and menacing, but they're not. And, and unfortunately, like I love Bruce McGill and they put him in this movie as this bad guy. And I think, you know, he has this ability to be stern, but he's so much better. I think he was so much better in comedies. And I, I just as soon as I saw him, and when, when it's like he's the guy that's the, the, the criminal that's going to get him their IDs, I'm like, no, why are you using him? Like, there's so many other guys you could have used. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, and I, I, and I would say going to the bad guy, like I think that whole subplot probably could have been written out and readjusted a little bit because those characters sure. show up only for a handful of scenes. They're really not. They don't add anything to. Uh, to the plot and they just take away times that you could have thrown in more veterinarian jokes. 
Sure. And like I said, it goes back to my issue with lazy writing and plot mm-hmm. holes where it's like you have this these filmmakers who are like, OK, we're going to write this plot about these criminals. And then it's like, oh, wait, now we have to have a scene where they get a fake ID. Well, fake IDs are just, just one phone call away. Yeah. Right. So let's just call my criminal buddies. And you're like, come on. It's it's I don't know. I'm just tired of seeing those type of criminals. Hmm. And I'm tired of talking about this this movie, <laughs> this plot. Uh, in conclusion, I, I think to me, and I, ha- I haven't even mentioned it yet because I was going to save it for the end, the biggest sin in this whole movie is that they use Martin Short's daughter as a crutch to justify their criminal behavior. And I thought that was just incredibly manipulative hmm. and it was lazy and it just because it was just like, well, I'm going to do all this bad stuff because got to do it for her, got to do it for her. And then they show the kid and the kid's really cute and you don't want to let the kid down. And it's just, oh, no. And I just, I, I could not take any of it seriously. And the fact that the very end, the, the, the very, it ends in a very clever way. I'll give him credit for that. But then when it, I was joking with, like, as we're, I, I think I mentioned it to you off the air, but this is the first time in this podcast that the last five, 10 minutes of the movie, I stopped watching. I was just listening because I knew everything that was going to happen. And then when it got toward the end, I looked at my wife and I said, I think it would be so hilarious in a bad way if this movie ends on a freeze frame and sure enough that nice freeze frame it's like a perfect cynical ending of the film i just i got nothing else on this chat any final thoughts on the movie well i will say that the one change that i did notice from the french to the american is the ending um the french film does not end the same way that the american film does which i think the american ending is much better yeah um in that sense and the other thing Going back, what struck me from watching the French film as well is Gerard Depardieu. Let me try that again. Gerard Depardieu and Nick Nolte, very similar looks. You know, oh, yeah. size we'll get, build. We'll get, we'll get into that in a minute in the trivia section. But okay. Yeah. Um, Martin Short and the actor from that from the French version, other than the hairstyle, very similar. The two kids, very similar. Like again, it, it seems like they didn't go out of their way to make this movie different in any way other than casting James Earl Jones. Well, like I said, and if they were, and if, if it sounds like Weber was writing both scripts at the same time, maybe that's what they figured. Yeah. I, guess. I don't know. But I, don't know. Uh, I always like to look at the, what I call the touchstone touch again, Chad, you mentioned it during your, one of your negatives, Nick Nolte's language is, is what makes this a touchstone movie. Yeah. And it seems to ride that edge of PG 13 to R again. I'm not, still not sure how this didn't make an R. I don't know what the rule is for how many four letter words you can mm-hmm. get away with. And, but, but then, but then I also put that in a way, the criminals in the film do seem a little Disney-fied. Um, Chad, I know you like to go digging into some of the reviews. What have you got for us on three? <laughs> I, I've got nothing on this film. No, like I got nothing at all. No Siskel and Ebert. They didn't. I mean, I, I, I'm almost scared to see if they put thumbs up on this one because I, do, I don't even want to, uh, I don't even want to know. No, I cannot <laughs> find anything on, uh, let me just do a quick search uh, if I can. But uh, no, their their television show archives did not have anything, and yeah, nothing nothing coming up. So I think okay. they I think they stayed away, and you know I, I yeah I this this is a movie that exists only in the context of DVD world from now on. Yeah, good good for them. Maybe they were fugitives from this movie. <laughs> Chad, on a scale of one to ten, where do you rate three fugitives? I'm probably gonna have to go with a two. Like I Ooh. said, I think the bank the bank robbery scene prevents this movie from being a total one. Yeah, and I was the same. I gave it a two. I thought it was just unfunny and contrived. And again, manipulative the way they used the 
uh, Martin Short's daughter character. And it seemed like it was written without too much thought. Yeah. You know, like I said, it just we got to connect these scenes. Well, there was supposed to be a scene in between them. That's ah, fine. We don't need that. Let's just go to the next location. And you're like, oh, OK, like how, how, how do they fit? in? I don't get it. Um, sequel or remake potential, like as we mentioned, this was a remake. So I don't want to see this movie remade <laughs> again. Um, but the open ending does allow for a sequel, I guess. You know, it did OK at the box office. And I, like as I mentioned, Nick Nolte did a comedic sequel of 48 hours. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity would have been there. But now it's 30 years later. So definitely don't need it from a trivia standpoint. As I mentioned, Martin Short would go on to star in the movie Pure Luck, which was a remake of a Francis Bieber film in which he plays a role that was originated by Pierre Richard, who played the role in Three Fug- Les Fugitives, I should say. And have you um, seen Pure Luck? No, I've never seen Pure Luck. I would say based on your view of Three Fugitives, stay away from Pure Luck. Is it full on Marty? It's full on Marty. Yeah. I, I He... Like I said, comedy is subjective. I understand that. But we've had a series of comedy stars over the last three decades. And some of them you like him, some of them you don't. And I think that he's one that I can take him or leave him. Like I said, again, Interspace, amazing. Three, three Amigos, amazing. I, yeah. I don't know if I need him carrying a movie. I guess we're going to have one with Captain Ron coming up in a few mm-hmm. years. But I think that's – I don't know if he's as much of the comedic star in that one. But, um, okay, so then we have Nick Nolte. Interesting. And I think I'm, I think I brought this up on the Down and Out in Beverly Hills episode. But – he plays a character in Three Fugitives that, as Chad mentioned, was originated by Gerard Depardieu in the film Lay Fugitives. Nick Nolte had previously starred in Down and Out Beverly Hills, which was based on the French film Voodoo Saved from Drowning. That film was remade in 2005 as Voodoo, starring Gerard Depardieu. So there is a Nick Nolte-Gerard Depardieu mm-hmm. connection. They played two, two, twice they played the same character from films. Uh, I did notice that the opening scene of the film... Was, was shot at McNeil Island Prison, which was only accessible by air or sea. You'll notice that, like, because he comes in on a ferry, like, there's no roads leading to that. I just was curious, and I looked it up, and I saw that it was a, it was a prison. It closed about 10 years ago, and now it's a, it's, it's like a correctional center more for people with in, with uh, mental problems. But, but while it was a prison, it had several famous inmates, two of which were Robert Stroud, who was known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, and Charles Manson was in that prison. And this was before he did all the helter-skelter killings. So in the early 60s, he was there. Uh, the last trivia note I had was just something that kind of came really quick as I was watching the movie. But when they go to the children's home to rescue mm. Martin Short's daughter, the receptionist was Kathy Kinney, who I remember, you know, we love, remember from uh, Drew Carey. Played, was it Mimi? Was that her name? Mimi, yeah. Yeah, I completely forgot to note that. But yeah, that was another one where, going back to my love of character actors, as soon as she shows up, I'm like, oh, yes, her. Yeah. Um, for a, for a soundtrack, there's really no soundtrack to speak of. There was a the the score was released on CD. There's a, there's only a couple of songs, but I did notice one of the songs in the film was the Bus Boys, who also did the song "The Boys Are Back in Town," which was used in 48 Hours. I did not know much about the Bus Boys. I saw that apparently they were the musical guests on Saturday Night Live when Eddie Murphy was on. Eddie Murphy sang back up with them. So I mean, I think they're still around, but no real connection there. So we'll go to the box office performance. As I mentioned, it did okay. It opened on it opened on January 27th, as we said. It was number two, and it made $6.4 million, and it was behind Rain Man, which was doing quite well at the time. Uh, Beaches, from our last episode, or two episodes, I should say, Beaches finished third at the box office. Uh, the only other film that opened against Three Fugitives was Physical Evidence. Do you know that one? That's Teresa Russell, Burt Reynolds' courtroom drama mm. thriller. 
I, I the name sounds familiar, but I did not see it. Yeah, I don't know. Interestingly enough, in its second week, Three Fugitives jumps up to number one, but and it, I mean, it just edges out Rain Man by less than thirty thousand dollars. Then it falls back to second in week three with the release of The Fly Two, and so for the month of February, it hovers around the top five. You know, we see new movies, The Burbs and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure also coming out at the same time. But then it's bumped all the way off the charts by the end of March, and it ends up making $40.6 million over the course of two months on a budget of only $15 million. So not too shabby. From an awards consideration, I wasn't expecting to see anything, <laughs> but here we have this Young Artist Awards, which I, I, don't, I think it still exists. I don't know. I, it's just a chance for some of these movies to say, hey, we got an award nomination. Um, the actress Sarah Roland Duroff, who played Meg, Martin Short's young daughter, she was nominated for Best Young Actress in a Supporting Role in a Motion Picture at the Young Artist Awards in 1990. She loses to Gabby Hoffman in the movie Field of Dreams. I don't know if you looked her up at all, but I think I saw that she was like five years old when they made Three Fugitives. It was her first movie. She did two TV appearances in 1990, and that's it. Like, it just... Maybe this movie burned her and she just wanted to get out of the industry. It's like, no, I don't uh, want to work with Martin Short anymore. <laughs> as far as – I always like to look at connections. I could not find a Alfred Hitchcock connection. I think those are going to start running out. I'm, I, I want to keep that going. <laughs> uh, James Bond connection as well. I couldn't find one other than the fact that in 1990, the next year, James Earl Jones goes on to star in The Hunt for Red October with Sean Connery. So kind of a second connection there. Uh, and from a personal connection, the only thing I had was in 2009, I went to the Aero Theater in Santa Monica, where I used to go all the time, and I met Haskell Wexler, who is the famous cinematographer who was a cinematographer of Three Fugitives. I, I was surprised when I saw his name pop up in the credits. But yes, I did meet him and I got his autograph on one of my DVDs. So, uh, Chad, is there anything more you can think of with Three Fugitives? Um, I feel like I served a prison term of 25 years watching this film. We, you and I, are the fourth and fifth fugitive. Okay, well, I guess it's time to move on. Don't go. No, Meg, Meg, Meg I'm sorry. We, we, we've already discussed three fugitives. We need to go on to the next movie. Don't go. No, Meg, Meg, Meg trust me. We need to move on. Chad, please, what is the next movie we're going to be discussing on the show? Well, Mike, I'm sure you're familiar with the Big Apple, and that's the town that never sleeps and has so many people and stories. And so let's look at three of those New York stories. Touchstone Pictures presents three unique stories about life in New York City. Martin Scorsese directing Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette. Why'd you make me do that? Me, I love you! Francis Ford Coppola directing Talia Shire and Giancarlo Giannini. Why is it so impossible for us to be in love? And Woody Allen directing and starring with Mia Farrow. The nice place you got here. What time's the Cobra coming out? Three unique views. One very special motion picture. New York Stories. Opens this week in select cities and Friday, March 10th in theaters everywhere. Yes, we have Touchstone's first anthology film, released on March 3rd, 1989, New York Stories. The idea for the film began with Woody Allen mentioning to his longtime producer, Robert Greenhut, that he had a lot of what he called, quote, juicy ideas that were best suited for short films, and he wondered if other directors felt the same way. So Greenhut went to Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, and he promised them total control over their short films, and they agreed to sign on. It took over a year to clear the schedules of all three directors. 
Of course, Martin Scorsese, he directed the first segment, which is called Life Lessons. He was coming off of The Last Temptation of Christ, which was his first film since he did the, the touchstone film The Color of Money. The writer of Life Lessons, Richard Price, you'll recognize that name, he also wrote The Color of Money. The second segment is called Life Without Zoe, and it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. He wanted, of course, he's one of the most revered directors of the 1970s. He'd done The Godfather, The Conversation, The Apocalypse Now, which is one of my favorite films. And he continued on with the 80s. I forgot how prolific he was in the 80s. He did movies like The Outsiders, Rumblefish, Peggy Sue Got Married. His most recent film was Tucker, The Man in His Dream, the Jeff Bridges movie. I never saw that. I remember my dad used to like that one a lot because it involves cars. And then his segment, he co-wrote it with his 17-year-old daughter, Sophia Coppola, who has gone on to a nice career of her own. And then the final film, which is called Oedipus Rex, W-R-E-C-K-S, was written and directed by Woody Allen. Of course, that's another prolific director. By the late 1980s, he'd kind of veered from comedy to drama. And so he was coming off his most serious films, which were September and Another Woman, which both starred his romantic companion, Mia Farrow. So we'll go into the first segment, which is said it's called Life Lessons. The cast, well, there's Nick Nolte again. I did notice that he had one film in between Three Fugitives and New York Stories. It's called Farewell to the King, and it was released on the same day as New York Stories. I remember that one vaguely. It was kind of like a guy living in the jungle, and he becomes savage because he's like a former soldier. I don't know. Did you ever see that one, Chad? I've never heard of that one. No? Okay. Yeah. One of those, one of those real... Kind of like I remember you remember seeing a trailer or a TV spot at one point. Uh, he stars opposite Rosanna Arquette in this film in uh, Life Lessons, I should say, part of New York Stories. She had started in the 1970s and was working steadily in film as the 80s rolled around. She did a great movie in the early 80s that I love called SOB. Of course, Desperately Seeking Susan, which is also really good. I think it holds up quite well with Madonna. She did The, the Aviator with Christopher Reeve. Silverado After Hours with Martin Scorsese, Eight Million Ways to Die, and she also has a really funny segment in the comedy anthology Amazon Women on the Moon. Her most recent credit before New York Stories was another film released in 1988 called The Big Blue. Uh, I'm not going to go into the rest of the cast, but I did see a couple of random cameos in the film. Uh, Debbie Harry is just one of the people sitting at an, at an art performance. She has like one line and they walk right by her. Um, and then I also noticed that there's a scene late in the segment where they're in a diner and Nick Nolte gets into a fight with Steve Buscemi. And when, but when Steve Buscemi walks into the diner, he's with his buddy, which is Peter Gabriel. Hmm. And I was kind of like, what's Peter Gabriel doing? And I realized, oh, Peter Gabriel did the score to Last Temptation of Christ. So they were probably working on the score at the time when they filmed it. And it was like, oh, come on in. So he's on screen. He has no lines, but you, you, it's clearly Peter Gabriel. Um, because we're talking about three separate movies within the course of one movie, we're not going to go too deep into the positives and negatives, but we can kind of point out a few things from each segment that we may have liked. Um, from a positive standpoint, from the first Life Lessons, this is Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette playing a painter and his protege. Uh, I really thought that Nick Nolte, once again, his performance is fantastic. He, he plays that brutish, domineering male, you know, and he's, he's also passive-aggressive and manipulative, and some of the scenes are kind of painful to watch but they're even though they're quite effective there's one scene in particular that he's he, she's asking for help like he's so like really mean kind of mean to her but then when she asks for help all of a sudden he's like nice but then he just does this weird kind of like for lack of a better word i'll say passive aggressive compliments and it just it made me it made me cringe a little bit look could you just tell me if you think i'm any good how about that 
Just tell me if, if, if I have any talent or if you think I'm just wasting my time. Because sometimes I feel I should just quit. Because... Just tell me what you think. Come on. What the hell difference does it matter what I think? It's yours. I mean, you make art because you have to, because you got no choice. It's not about talent. It's about no choice but to do it. Are you any good? Well, you're 22, so who knows? Who cares? You want to give it up. You give it up, you weren't a real artist to begin with. And the other thing that I really like about that portion of the segment, and we talked about it a little bit on the opening of the show, is the soundtrack. Martin Scorsese is always known for doing great soundtracks. Unfortunately, I mean, I think the song Whiter Shade of Pale is a little overused. It keeps coming up over and over again over the course of this 45-minute movie. Uh, but I wonder if he kind of used it for dramatic effect because, like, when they play... I noticed, maybe I'm looking too much into this, but when you hear Whiter Shade of Pale in the background, it seems to coincide with Nick Nolte having, like, a creative block. But then the other songs, like the Cream Song Politician, there's also... Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. And what's interesting is he uses live versions of Politician Like a Rolling Stone rather than the studio versions. And when those songs are playing, he's a lot more productive. I don't know if that was a, a conscious choice, but it, it seems like whenever you hear Whiter Shade of Pale, it's Nick Nolte is, well, maybe, he's, maybe he is a Whiter Shade of Pale because he's more depressed and he can't really get any work out. Uh, did you notice anything about the soundtrack? And then do you have any other positives for this segment, Chad? Um. I did not notice the soundtrack. These were other than the "Like a Rolling Stone" song. Uh, these are all songs that uh, I did not recognize. But I think you are probably on the right track with the usage of music. Knowing Scorsese, I am yeah. going to guess that he didn't just randomly choose songs that he liked. Like, there's probably a reason for that. I will just say you mentioned um, Rosanna Arquette being in this film. The credits don't show up until after the first until the story kind of gets set into motion. Mm -hmm. And when she shows up, when he picks her up at the airport, I thought it was Olivia Dabo. Who <laughs> okay. I'm like, Oh, okay. And then it's Roseanne Arquette. I'm like, Oh, okay. And maybe it's just because I recently watched greedy and had Olivia Dabo on the, on the brain. I don't know, but it was nice to see Roseanne Arquette. Um, sure. And yeah, I, you know, this is three films. I'm going to just throw it out there now that I think this is the best of the three, which, Okay. When you lead off your film with the best, that it's not a good sign. But um, yeah, I, I, again, going back to Nick Nolte, he, I think I need to go back and watch more Nick Nolte films now because yeah. I've never really appreciated the talent that uh, that is there. Have you seen North Dallas Forty? That's the one that I'd like to see. I, I have not. That's the one I always kind of heard about. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I mean, I, it's surprisingly good, and and I think what's funny, he's surprisingly good, I should say. Mm -hmm. What, what's funny is so a lot of the reviews I read said the same thing where that, that said this was the favorite. I will get into it in a minute, but I, I preferred the Woody Allen one the most. But mm. this one, I mean, from from a negative standpoint from this, I thought it was almost too stylish. And I like Martin Scorsese, the filmmaker, but this was just ridiculous. The amount of like where he's like irising in and doing the, the close ups. Mm. It, the, the camera is like it never stops moving. And mm. I don't know if that's something where are we supposed to be like voyeurs looking in on Nick Nolte or Zen Arquette in this 
crumbling relationship. I, I did, that's the one I think I didn't like about it. A little too stylish. Mm-hmm. Did you, was, you said that this was your favorite segment. Was there anything you didn't like about it? Um, I, I think it could have used more Steve Buscemi. Okay. But that's, again, that's my fondness for Steve Buscemi. Um, one thing I will notice, and you know, cause this whole movie is about an artist and the artist relationship. I don't know if you saw the story about the artist who actually did the paintings. Oh yeah. That's coming up in our trivia section. Okay. Uh, we'll save that for our trivia section then. But okay. uh, no, I think, you know, kind of going back to what we said at the beginning with with um, Three Fugitives, I think this movie, especially this segment, given Scorsese's uh, recent output, is helped by the fact that it is only 45 minutes long. Like, yeah. I think had, especially with total control, if uh, Scorsese did this movie today, it would be two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and a half. <laughs> and I don't think you need two and a half hours of Nick Nolte brooding and being manipulative. So I think the 45 minute time frame worked perfectly to tell this story, get in, get out yeah. and move on. I mean, believe me, if it would have been two and a half hour version, I can only imagine how many of those minutes would be reserved for whiter shade of pale. Like that song just over. And you get the remix version, the live version, oh, the, the Medley, dubstep version. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, but we're moving on to the second segment, which is almost universally considered to be the worst of the three. And I could tell you that I'm sure it, it was mine, probably yours, my wife's. It was it's the, the less said about this one, the better, but I will give it its due. As you mentioned, it's called Life Without Zoe, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. The cast itself, um, the young Zoe is played by Heather McComb. She was actually making her on screen debut in this film. And I, I saw that she turned 12 years old the day that before the film was released. Her parents are played by Talia Shire, Francis Ford Coppola's sister, who she, of course, we people of our generation should know her because she became famous in the 70s playing Connie in the Godfather films and, of course, Adrian in the Rocky films. And, Chad, did you see Talia Shire is also in Rad? Oh, of course. She plays the mom of the main character. Oh, I, again, have not seen Rad. Chad sings its praises. It's actually getting an official Blu-ray release this year, Uh-oh. so... There will be a screening sometime in the future. Yes. And then, of course, Zoe's father in the film is played by the great Italian actor Giancarlo Giannini, who had been acting in uh, cinema in Italy since the late 60s. I saw that he had got an Oscar nomination for Best Actor in 1975 for the film Seven Beauties. More random cameos and random roles. Mm -hmm. Did you recognize Zoe's the butler who lives with her is Don Novello. I, that voice is immediately recognizable as Father Guido Sarducci. Uh, I didn't. I didn't recognize, but I saw in the in the cast, and yes, I uh, I knew Father Guido Sarducci immediately. Yeah, just even without the mustache, you just instantly recognize that voice. Um, I mentioned cameos. Chris Elliott. There, there's a scene where there's like a robbery at the hotel where Zoe lives, and Chris Elliott plays one of the robbers. Now, I was convinced there's another robber that comes out. He looked just like Gary Oldman, and I and I, I did not see him listed anywhere at IMDb mm-hmm. Wiki. Nothing as an uncredited. But I mean, I swear, if that wasn't Gary Oldman, somebody clearly stole his DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, this segment was also features the film debut of the actor Adrian Brody. I just saw him listed in the credits. I did not know exactly where he was. I sure don't remember seeing him in the film. And I found a podcast. I cannot remember the name of it. I think it was like the Brody Cast or whatever, where these guys were going to go back and watch all of his movies. And so I listened to a brief segment where they talk about New York stories and they reveal that there's a scene where Zoe and her friends are working on the school paper and Adrian Brody's in the background in that in the newsroom. And that's that's it. He doesn't have any lines yet. He gets He has a character name. 
I don't get it. Um, positives, very few and far between <laughs> for this film. But I will say, and again, my, my, when I told my wife we were doing positives and negatives for each segment, she's like, what are you going to have as a positive <laughs> on the Coppola one? Because I don't know what you got. And I will say, I did like that it gives kind of a child's perspective on the world. It's very whimsical. And in particular, there's this, there's this one scene where she's talking to the other, that rich boy, and she's given the story about the bunny rabbit. And I did like that. I used to travel with my father, so I had no friends. You? No friends? Really? Then my mom told me the story of the bunny rabbit. Bunny rabbit? What is bunny rabbit? Once upon a time, there was a bunny rabbit, a lonely one. He had no friends at all. So his mother put him in his backyard with all his toys and carrots and vegetables and said, you play here with all your stuff. And what do you think happened? What happened? Soon lots of bunny rabbits were peeking over the fence saying, can I play too? My mom told me that story. Whenever I'm lonely and have no friends, I just have a lot of fun by myself. And people always peek over the fence and say, can we play too? I see. So be it. Can I play too? But yes, there's obviously much more negatives and positives. Chad, just out of curiosity, were you able to find any positives in life without Zoe? Uh, it's short, which is, seems to be my positive for everything in the show. Um, <laughs> you know, Sofia Coppola, as you mentioned, has uh, gone on to have a successful career. And mm -hmm. I... I, I don't know what to say about her exactly in this. I'm just trying to work in um, a, a segue into the fact that I also recently watched Virgin Suicides. Okay. Which is a film that she adapted from a novel, and I think it was her first directing, um, her, her directorial debut. That movie made me love film again. I have wow. not seen a film that well done in a long time. See, I didn't like it. I saw it in the theater and didn't like it. I like Lost in Translation. But... And see, and maybe that's the thing is I had never yeah. seen I had never seen it, and I just finished this book called Greatest Movie Year Ever, which is all about 1999. Oh yeah. And so it talked about it and and was very spoiler heavy. So I like stopped and watched the movie, and yes, I really enjoyed it. Um, so I think what I'm trying to get around here to saying is I. That that movie is based on a book. This movie, uh, while also kind of technically based on uh, the life of Eloise, I believe it is called. Yeah, that that, that, that those books. Yeah, the Eloise. Children's yeah, book. this this one just. Yeah, I don't know what the idea was. Maybe this was just a, a passion project for Francis Ford Coppola to work with Sophia and sure. you know, help him out. But yeah, this one you talked about. You know, the last 10 minutes of Three Fugitives zoning out. I think I, after about 15 minutes, this movie was just on as background noise. I like I didn't know where it was going or what the point was. I just. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We zoned out as well. Like it's, it's my, my I, I, there's so many negatives. I'm trying I'm going to try not to pile on. But I will say, yeah, it's very slow for a short film. But what really bothered me was that it kind of sets up this adventure. Like you see, oh, you know, she when she leaves to go to school and everyone's saying hi to her. And, and like she goes to the, the, the different areas of the hotel. And you're like, oh, OK, are we going to have something? Like I said, this, this childlike whimsy. But then once she, they set all that up, it just doesn't go anywhere. Nothing yeah. happens. And all I could think was, like, are they trying to say that this is some sort of allegory where like rich people are just like kids with toys? 
I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but again, I, I don't, the less said about this <laughs> segment, the better. I don't know if, if there's, I'm sure you have a lot of negatives as well. If you can try not to be too mean, what, was there anything else that you just, that bothered you about this movie or about this segment? Uh, the fact that it was in there and came after a really good Martin Scorsese segment. Like, again, had you let off the movie New York Stories with the uh, Francis Ford Coppola portion, maybe it would be looked at differently. But coming off of this one very heavy, very serious film with Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette, and then like you said, this one's very whimsical. And I don't know if it was just you know something that they they thought it'd be a good palate cleanser, but maybe. it just yeah. I, 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 I think yeah. the I think the framing it's kind of like a, an album. You know, you need to yeah. sequence your your songs in a good order, and this did not help out. Uh, the sequencing of this film did not help this story. Well, yeah, I'm wondering if that's exactly what it is. I'm going to treat it like a palate cleanser because when we get into the final segment, I, will, I was so pleasantly surprised with that one because I was so bored during the second one that all of the, the Woody Allen's humor really landed a lot, lot further. Uh, and, of course, that, like I said, the last segment is called Oedipus Rex. This is Woody Allen's first on-screen role since Hannah and Her Sisters. Of course, he stars opposite Mia Farrow. She had started in the, in the 1960s, of course, her famous roles in movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Great Gatsby. Before, I, I, I didn't, re- didn't realize it was this prolific, but she began a long working and personal relationship with Woody Allen in the 1980s. She appeared in 13 of his films over an 11-year period. Wow. And that just shows you how prolific he was, that he made 13 films in 11 years. This was the ninth of those 13 films. But to show you how much work she was getting from Woody Allen... She didn't do anything else during those 11 years other than some voiceover narration, narrating a TV show, and she appeared in the movie Supergirl, which I'd never actually seen that with Helen Slater. Um, The other woman in the film who I just absolutely adore is the great Julie Kavner. I forget about all the great TV that she did in the 70s, most notably the, the show Rhoda. Of course, she had worked with Woody Allen on Hannah and Her Sisters and also in Radio Days. In 1987, her last film's uh, credit was the movie Surrender, which I think we discussed on Touchstone. It must have come out against one of the Touchstone movies. That would be Michael Caine, Sally Field, I think, romantic Mm -hmm. comedy. Uh, And, of course, Julie Kavner will forever be known as the voice of Marge Simpson on The Simpsons. The last actor that I'll mention is the woman who plays Woody Allen's mother, who, of course, is also very well known for being the voice of an iconic cartoon character. Her name is Mae Questel, and she was the voice of Betty Boop. And interestingly enough, she even provided the voice of Betty Boop in Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. Uh, she'd also appeared in the movies Funny Girl, and she would go on to play Aunt Bethany in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation later in 1989. I, I totally forgot about that. I'm not as big of a Christmas Vacation fan as some people are. Mm-hmm. Did you recognize her from Christmas Vacation when you watched this movie? No, I, I have to go on record. I'm with you. I am probably one of a handful of people who don't who doesn't appreciate uh christmas vacation the way everyone else does yeah i like it i just can't quote it like people do readily you know there's other movies for that like christmas story um just like <laughs> and adrian die hard brody yeah exactly just like adrian brody and life without zoe this also marked the film debut for a, a big star there was kirsten dunst she has an uncredited role as mia farrow's daughter and i was like trying to remember where that was it's a scene where they go out to to lunch and then of course they go to the magic show um and there's also a bit part for larry david in the film and a random cameo by the the mayor of new york city ed koch who was still the mayor at the time the movie was shot i wonder if it was just hey they're making a movie called new york stories and woody allen was so icon- uh, 
iconic with New York that he just said, I'm sh- sure, let's do it. Well, didn't um, Ed Koch, hasn't he appeared, like, isn't he in Ghostbusters 2? Is he? I, mean, I, I think he I made a lot of one. cameo appearances. It's Oh, good for him. Yeah, no, that's pretty funny. Um, for the positives, I got several positives, but I, I will say, uh, I'll keep it simple and just say, I, I liked the plot. It was a very clever plot, you know, with the idea that Woody Allen is just, his mother is very overbearing, and he wishes she would disappear, and then they go to a magic show, and she disappears. And then, I, I, I'm not going to go into the details, I'll let people watch it themselves to see how she reappears, and ends up being rather clever. It's got a great setup uh, with the disappearance at the magic show as well. I agree. I think the first half of this film of, of this story is uh, quite ingenious, and um, I, I, I think it kind of fell apart in the later half. But the setup was really good, and I was exp- I was waiting to see what was going to happen next. And I am not a huge Woody Allen fan. You know, I've probably only seen maybe about ten of his films, uh, which I think he just released ten films last year. Yeah, he's an acquired taste, yeah. you know, like, he, yeah, I like some of his stuff, but not all of them. But I, I think the, the film worked and and the whole setup, but I was really one, curious to see where this was going to go. And unfortunately, uh, I, I have for my positive and negative, I have positive being the first half of the film, negative being the second half of the film. <laughs> well, that's what I like about it. Actually, one of my positives was that he seems to have the best grasp of the short film format. I know mm. you talked about how much you liked Scorsese's segment, but I think this... His th- this is kind of a one joke premise, and it doesn't you can't take it beyond forty minutes. Like yeah. it would it would it, it works so well in the shorter format. And then the other main positive I had for the film is Julie Kavner. I think is terrific in this movie. Just good comic timing. And granted, she's got a good script to work off of. I, I mean, when you only know her from The Simpsons and random stuff in the seventies, uh, it was nice to see her on screen. And, and Woody really knows how to give her the best material to work with. Unfortunately, the negative of the film. <laughs> Again, the same material, I thought Mia Farrow was just very blah. Like, I'm not overly familiar with her stuff. I've seen Rosemary's Baby. I have not seen a lot of the Mia Farrow, Woody Allen films. I've seen most of his 70s films he did with, like, Diane Keaton and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not impressed. I, Mia Farrow is just, she's just there. Like, I, I, I did not think she was good or bad. She's just, she's just kind of there. And I, as we talk about when, when the acquired taste, which I guess you can call it a negative for this film, is that you kind of really have to be a fan of Woody Allen's work to appreciate the humor in this movie, right? No, I would agree with you. I think if this plays much to Woody Allen's strengths, and you have to, if you if you're not a fan of that, this you know you probably like the Francis Ford Coppola story better. <laughs> So did you have any negatives before we we wrap up the whole New York story? Uh, I think my only negative was the second half of the story. Like it just, uh, it, it was, it it was interesting, but I don't think it really worked. Uh, And I would also say my negative as a whole for the movie is, you know, you've touched on this on like back on the three men and a baby episode and stuff. This movie is called New York stories, but I don't feel like we really got a lot of New York in the movie like it's more personal stories as, as opposed to using the city and i know actually the woody allen second half does use the city in the sure, of the best sure, way yeah. but i just i wanted more new york out of new york stories yeah i guess because the scorsese one you see him go to a couple of art galleries and stuff and then mm-hmm. and then the the coppola one yeah you see her on the street at one point when she's trying to go to school or you see her walking around the park with the, with the other rich boy. But yeah, I, I would like to have seen it more of a, as a character. Yeah. Now it's a good point. My final thoughts again, 
it seems like a lot of the reviews of the film say the same thing, which is mm-hmm. there's one good one, there's one bad one, and there's one that's kind of blah, that like kind of meh. And I thought that I have the same thing. The only difference is which one did you think was the good one? And for me, I thought Woody's Woody Allen segment was easily my favorite. The Scorsese one is is very well acted, but it's all right. And then the Coppola one is just utterly forgettable. Chad? Uh, yeah, I'm say you know, I, like I said, really like the Scorsese one. Coppola, that's a good bathroom break. You know, you don't have to pause the film. You can just go get a snack, come back. And then the Woody Allen one, it's fun. It's just high premise, high bar at the beginning, low bar at the end. Um, kind of disappointing flat. I think, again, rearrange this film, do Coppola, Allen. Well, I'd actually do Coppola, Scorsese, Allen, just because that way you kind of end on a happy note. Yeah, I, I didn't on the comedy. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I have but, Roger Ebert's review, which um, basically just sums up everything that we just said. Of the three films, the only successful one is Life Lessons, the Scorsese story of Millage Painter, blah, blah, blah. Coppola, an updated version of the story of Eloise, is surprisingly thin and unfocused. And the Allen, about a 50-year-old man dominated by his mother, starts well but takes a wrong turn about halfway through. Yeah. And that's, like I said, it seems like you've, once again, you fell in line with Mr. Ebert. No, um, don't so- say that. I don't like Roger Ebert. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, again... I, I don't know if this could ever have been a Disney film. I, I look at the Touchstone Touch. It's an anthology film. Um, the, it was rated PG, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Was it flipped? It, could it have been? Was it a Touchstone movie because of the the stature of the directors? Like maybe they didn't want to be associated with just Disney by itself. Because it feel I felt like only the Scorsese film had any raciness to it. The other mm-hmm. two were could have very easily been like Disney films. So uh, on a scale of one to ten, because of based on how. I looked at the three segments. I went right down the middle. Five out of ten. You had one good movie, one bad movie, and one that was kind of meh. So, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't think about how you would rank them all. I just said, well, I like half of the movie in a way. So, five out of ten. Chad, what about you? I'm, I'm going to go with a four. Again, this goes back to like the Beaches thing where it's like it's a well-done film. It's just not a film that I think I want to watch again anytime soon. And and I sure. I go I think I put my rankings on the entertainment value of a film more than the technical aspects. So, it, yeah, it was it was fine for what it was. But uh, we've seen it, and now we can move on with the rest of 1989. Yeah, and then I mean I always like to see would there be a potential for a remake or a sequel. There's not really. I think these all deserve to remain as short films. Mm-hmm. You know, because, and as you mentioned, I don't think i could ever see a feature length film made out of any of these three segments it would it would just so so drag i mean the closest one maybe might be the scorsese one maybe if you had a lot more of the backstory with nick nolte and rosanna arquette and then she moves on and then maybe she's in a new relationship and nick nolte's still working and you see him with his next um protege or whatever but otherwise yeah i i could see why this was not this these were left as short films okay from a trivia standpoint as chad mentioned the paintings in the Scorsese segment Life Lessons that Nick Nolte does were actually done by an artist named Chuck Connolly. Scorsese was so impressed with his work that he planned on taking some of it back to Los Angeles to line up buyers. But supposedly Chuck Connolly gave an interview to the New York Post just before that, and he ripped both the movie and Scorsese himself. So, so uh, Scorsese didn't pursue the idea any further. Did you look any more in Chuck Connolly? I believe there's a, there's a documentary made about him, and that's where they got that information from. No, I just found a article about him that had the quote that said that he uh, 
After seeing the movie, he told Scorsese, I thought it was cliched, mundane, and no raging bull. And apparently yeah. Scorsese took offense at that. So uh, I, I guess so. Um, and then, of course, from another trivia standpoint, is that rumor has it that Steven Spielberg was supposed to direct one of the segments, but he dropped out and was replaced by Coppola. I did a bunch of digging. I can't seem to find anything to substantiate that rumor. Mm. That might be one of the ones where if you ever see him do a Q&A and you get a chance to submit a, se- a question, <laughs> ask him, hey, is this true? Well, I wondered, um, you know, because this would have been a few years after the Twilight Zone movie. Maybe people are confusing Spielberg directing part of that, or maybe this was something that there was thought of moving in the anthology direction with Spielberg just because yeah. he had that experience. I don't know. Just yeah. and, and then, yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, and then the one trivia factor that I seem to see in a lot of different places was that there is one actor, Paul Herman, who appears in all three segments. I totally forgot. I, I recognize him in two of the three because I think I saw him in the Zoe segment and then I saw him again in the Woody Allen one. I'm like, oh, that's the guy that was in the Zoe one. But I don't remember him from the Scorsese segment. Uh, Paul Herman had actually worked with all three of the directors previously. So it was kind of a synergy. Uh, the soundtrack, as we talk about with as I talked about earlier with the Scorsese, music does play a prominent role in the Life Lessons segment. Of course, Politician by Cream, so good. Uh, the Nighttime is the Right Time by Ray Charles. We got live version of Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. And of course, as we mentioned, Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. Wanted to do a little digging, as we, Chad and I do on our other podcast, Wonder Why. We look at the charts for some of these hits. And Whiter Shade of Pale actually reached number five on the Billboard chart in 1967. And has sold more than 10 million copies. It's actually one of the highest selling singles of all time. Uh, the Life Without Zoe segment, uh, the, the, the soundtrack was actually provided by the Latin artist Cuban Kid Creole is his name. Um, I, I, I know that name from when I was growing up. I, I thought it was actually kind of a decent background score. And then I, I, from an interesting trivia standpoint to tie into other Touchstone films, the Oedipus Rex segment by Woody Allen features the song Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman, which also plays over the opening credits of Big Business. So it was welcome to hear that again. Ah, the box office. Well, you know, this was sort of an art house type of movie, the anthology film. Uh, Not really a lot to speak about. It opened again on March 3rd. It only opened on 12 screens. And I read somewhere that they were handpicked, the specific 12 screens in America that got this movie. It made $432,000 which gave it a $36,000 per screen average, which is a ridiculous amount. Just to compare, the second place film by per screen average the week that New York Stories opened only made $5,600 per screen, six times less per screen than New York Stories. Uh, The new releases that week, as we mentioned, Farewell to the King, uh, also Lean on Me, Skin Deep, and Dream a Little Dream. Uh, in its second week, New York Stories goes wide and goes on to 500 screens, and it finishes seventh with 2.4 million. Lean on Me, which had opened the week before, had was stayed in first place for both of those weeks. Uh, the other films that opened against it were Chances Are and Police Academy Six: City Under Siege. I I think I st- checked out of the Police Academy franchise when the Goot did after Part Four. Um, in week three of the New York Stories release, it gets pushed all the way down to tenth with the releases of leviathan and fletch lives and then it falls out of the top 10 and leaves theaters after about a month it only earns 10.8 million dollars on a 15 million dollar budget so i mean it wasn't really expected to be your box office hit i think it was just to to get some love amongst the art house crowd and maybe get some awards consideration well it gets 
one nomination for an award, and that is Julie Kavner. She wins the American Comedy Award for Funniest Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture, which I support because I, again, I thought she's one of the best parts of the Woody Allen segment. Uh, look at some connections again. No Alfred Hitchcock connection. Damn, we're gonna. I gotta. I gotta. <laughs> we're gonna get some. We're gonna get one in the next episode, but uh, not in this one. Uh, a James Bond connection. Finally, we get some real connections. Uh, Giancarlo Giannini from Life Without Zoe. He starred in both Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, opposite Daniel Craig. He played the MI6 agent Rene Matisse. And also, and I totally missed this until I was doing some digging on IMDb, but Chad, if you can remember, in Life Without Zoe, there's a scene where Zoe goes to visit, like, she goes to a party, and there's, like, a princess there, and her name is Princess Soroya, and Zoe has a really brief conversation with the princess. The princess is played by the actress Carol Bouquet, who, as soon as I saw that name, I was like, ah, of course, she starred in the Roger Moore James Bond film For Your Eyes Only. Um, from a personal connection, uh, Rosanna Arquette, I, I actually met her, again, at that Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. I met her in 2007. She was there for, to do a screening of the film Searching for Deborah Winger, which was all about actresses and the difficulty finding roles as they get older. And I used to always like getting autographs when I went to these Q&As. So right before I went to the screening, I just went to, I think it was Circuit City. Oh, rest in peace, Circuit City. And I bought a DVD copy of Desperately Seeking Susan. And after the screening was over, I got walked up to her and got her to autograph it for me. What was funny was I almost cringe a little bit because the person in line behind me had a screenplay that he wanted to give to Rosanna Arquette. And it was just like, oh, God, because it was like, oh, hey, actors are having trouble finding roles. Let's uh, here's a screenplay. Ugh, so bad. Um, and then the last personal connection, which I believe Chad and I should both have, is when we worked at Fox, we got to attend a couple of different table reads for The Simpsons. So we did sit in the same room as Julie Kavner, right, Chad? You did some table reads with The Simpsons. Uh, I have done one. Julie Kavner phoned in that day. Ah, uh, see, I've done two, and I think Julie may have phoned in one, but the other one she did show up. So it was like, oh, hey, Julie Kavner, so. Where's my mother? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? What are you talking about? She vanished. Vanished? What if you disappeared? Vanished? I, how is that possible? I have no idea. It never happened to me before. Did it, Rita? No, it's, it's, it's like a miracle. That's exactly what I thought when it happened. Just like a miracle. Well, how does this trick work? There's a secret compartment, but she's not in it. It's empty. Okay, we searched every inch of the theater. She's gone. What do you mean she's gone? How can she be gone? Look what they're telling me here. How is it possible that she's gone? Where, where did you get this trick? I don't understand. Where, where did you buy this thing? Pittsburgh, 20 years ago. The place is out of business now. Maybe, maybe it has got to do with molecules. What do you mean molecules? You take a little Jewish lady and you stuff her in a box and she disappears and she's telling me molecules? You know what? The theater's not taking any responsibility Look, for this. Don't worry either. about a thing. Anything happens to your mother, I'll get you two free tickets to any show we do. Who wants tickets okay, to I'm, 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 I'm going to call the police. No, no. I don't want any publicity on this. It's too strange. You know, attorney's mother vanishes during magic trick. It's bizarre. I don't want publicity on this either. Nobody will ever volunteer again. In conclusion, we've got two films. We've got an anthology film. We have a wacky farce. Are these good ideas for Touchstone? Would they fit the Disney ideal? I don't know. Three Fugitives was a good enough hit at the box office, I think. It would not have fit into a Disney mode with all that foul language. So to me, it seems like a good idea. And they also get a chance to flex some of their art house street cred with this uh, anthology film. Chad, and does it seem like these were good ideas for Touchstone, even if they might not have been as successful at the box office? Oh, definitely. I think Three Fugitives had potential. You know, as we've, again, said many times on this show, 
most touchstone films are about two or three rewrites away from a good film. And I think, I think the premise of three fugitives could work. It just didn't in this case, but obviously it made money and New York stories. Like you said, that's, I believe Disney wouldn't have owned a Miramax at this time, Oh no, but, yeah. but maybe this was like the start of trying to, uh, look into getting into that realm of film distribution or film quality. So I can yeah, understand why they did see. it. I'm curious to see if we move on with some of these touchstone movies and see if any of them have that sort of artiness. I know that in the mid nineties, they touchstone does a co-production deal with merchant ivory. So we're going to see some costume period dramas mm-hmm. as well. But um, speaking of Disney, I always like to look and see if Walt Disney pictures themselves released any movies during the same period as these two touchstone films. The only thing I could find was uh, The Rescuers was re-released on March 17th. It stayed in the top four for the first three weeks and the top ten for over a month. It leaves theaters after six weeks, and it earns $21.2 million. Again, free money. Just keep putting these mm-hmm. movies out in theaters, and you've got $20 million in your pocket. It's great. So what's coming up on the next episode? Well, unfortunately, we're going we're gonna to start with what I consider to be a very underwhelming ensemble heist movie, but then we follow it up with what... I also consider to be one of the greatest films in the entire Touchstone library. Uh, for my co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Chad Smart. He also is the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the PCPN, where we do our Wonder Why show. And he also has three other shows every month. Uh, my name is Mike DeKalb. Again, I'm on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. The Touchstone, Out of Touchstone Twitter is, of course, at Out of Touchstone. You can reach us via email, touchstone at gmail.com, and our website, outoftouchstone.com. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.